Hi, ParCast listeners. It's Vanessa with some incredible news. You can purchase your copy of our book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, available now at parcast.com slash cults. Cults is an expanded look at the people who led and followed the most radical groups in history, with an unflinching exploration into what happens when the most vulnerable recesses of the mind are twisted into the lowest forms of malevolence. Details not featured on our podcasts. We're so proud to bring you this fantastic compilation of stories, and we're forever grateful for your support. Without you, none of this would be possible, so thank you. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults to order today. Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and anti-Semitism. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On June 14, 1931, 27-year-old German naval officer Reinhard Heydrich nervously stepped off a train in Munich. He was in the city for the most important job interview of his life. A month and a half earlier, Heydrich had been dismissed from the German Navy. After he was implicated in an internal investigation, his arrogant conduct convinced his superiors that he didn't deserve to wear an officer's uniform. His once promising naval career had evaporated. The timing couldn't have been worse for Heydrich. Between the aftermath of World War I and the Great Depression, Germany's economy was in turmoil. It was difficult to find any job, especially one with military prestige. However, a childhood friend managed to secure him an interview with a small security force. Though Heydrich didn't know the specifics, he knew the job involved protecting a prominent politician. Heydrich's friend drove him to a suburb of Munich to meet his potential boss. Heydrich knocked on the door, and when it opened, he found himself face to face with Heinrich Himmler, one of Adolf Hitler's top officials. Himmler was the leader of the SS, a Nazi paramilitary force. Heydrich didn't know it yet, but his simple interview would ultimately lead to the deaths of millions in Europe. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season on Dictators, we're taking a look at Hitler's henchmen. These officers helped the Nazi leader build his regime and spread terror across Europe. This week, we're exploring the rise of Reinhard Heydrich from promising young naval commander to Nazi stalwart. During his evolution, Heydrich became one of Hitler's most bloodthirsty enforcers. Next week, we'll look at Heydrich's brutal reign as the acting protector of Bohemia and Moravia. We'll also explore his role as one of the key architects of the Holocaust. We'll head to Nazi Germany right after this. 
We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hello, lover of things that go bump in the night. This is Dan Cummins. And I'm Lindsay Cummins. And we co-host the paranormal horror podcast, Scared to Death. Are shadow people real? What about demonic possessions? Poltergeist activity? Do you believe in ghosts? Malevolent entities? Are aliens real? Could you be abducted? We don't know. But what we do know is that we have over 230 episodes of stories on our podcast, Scared to Death, exploring all of the possibilities. Each week, we share several supposedly true stories that have been gathered from around the world and submissions from our own fans of allegedly true tales. Curious about the paranormal? Just like a spooky story? Do you need more fear to fuel you through your long work days? Come join us. New episodes of Scared to Death are released every Tuesday night. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you end up scared to death. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There were few Nazi officers whose actions were more vicious than Reinhard Heydrich's. His eagerness to bring Hitler's Nazi ideals to fruition directly led to the murder of six million Jews, as well as countless Czech, Soviet, and Polish citizens. Heydrich was one of Hitler's most devoted disciples. The Nazi leader described Heydrich as, quote, the man with the iron heart and one of the best national socialists, one of the strongest defenders of the German Reich, one of the greatest opponents of all enemies of the empire. But Reinhard Heydrich wasn't always an iron-hearted monster. In fact, his transformation into Hitler's minion likely came as a surprise to those who knew him as the shy son of a music teacher. Heydrich's father, Bruno, was a composer and opera singer, but he struggled to find long-term success on the stage. So in 1899, he opened a music conservatory in Halle, about 100 miles from Berlin. His timing was fortunate. Imperial Germany was experiencing an economic and social boom on its way to becoming a major European nation-state. With a rising middle class, teaching music was becoming quite profitable. By the time Reinhardt was born in 1904, the Heydrich family was financially and socially comfortable. 
As the firstborn son, Reinhard Heydrich was poised to follow in his father's footsteps and take over the conservatory. At least until 1914, when Germany went to war. Ten-year-old Heydrich was far too young to join his fellow Germans on the front lines of World War I. While the conflict left an impression on him, the aftermath of the war had a far greater impact. Germany's defeat sent the nation into political turmoil. The Kaiser was gone and the monarchy abolished. In early 1919, there was constant speculation about what kind of government would next lead Germany. In the midst of the power vacuum, German communists attempted to seize control in Berlin. However, nationalists quickly squashed the revolt and executed the rebellious leaders. But after the attempted coup, the communist revolutionary spirit still spread throughout the country. By February 1919, it had reached Heydrich's hometown of Halle. Heydrich witnessed massive protests and worker strikes on the streets. As the chaos intensified, the nascent German government sent a Freikorps unit to restore order. The Freikorps were a far-right paramilitary group and a precursor to the notorious Nazi brownshirts. For several days, the Freikorps and communists battled in Halle. When the dust settled, the Freikorps prevailed. At the beginning of March, they placed the city under martial law. As part of this effort, they organized a civilian defense force, and 15-year-old Reinhard Heydrich volunteered to join their ranks. In popular Nazi mythos, Heydrich's early experience as a member of the paramilitary group was described as his political awakening. Allegedly, this period laid the foundation for Heydrich's extremist views. Historian Callum MacDonald suggests that the young Heydrich was born and raised in a German nationalist and anti-Semitic household. Thus, joining a Freikorps organization was a continuation of his journey toward Nazism. However, biographer Robert Gervart argues that his primary motivation was anti-communist sentiments, not devout Nazism. To support this argument, he points to the lack of evidence that Heydrich actually participated in Freikorps violence. Still, that didn't mean Heydrich opposed violent methods. In fact, throughout his time in the armed forces, he became convinced that brutality was intrinsic to struggle. To him, this made violence necessary in defeating one's enemies. Though the communists failed to secure power, that didn't mean Germany's problems were over. In the wake of World War I, the German economy bottomed out and inflation rose astronomically. Millions of German lives were financially destroyed. Heydrich felt this turmoil personally. By 1922, his father's music conservatory was practically bankrupt. Realizing that a career in music was no longer feasible, 18-year-old Heydrich enlisted in the Navy as a cadet. The Navy was the only branch in the German military that still commanded respect among the people. Unlike the Army, many citizens believed the Navy shouldered less blame for defeat in the Great War. The Navy also provided structure in an unstructured German society. 
After witnessing the chaos of the communist uprising, the thought of an orderly, stable organization probably seemed quite appealing to Heydrich. But his time as a cadet was a miserable experience. Between his high-pitched voice and bourgeois background, many of the other cadets either ridiculed him or discredited him completely. Some of this harassment was also based on a claim that he and his family were secretly Jewish. The rumor had followed the Heydrich family for years. In 1916, Bruno Heydrich discovered that a disgruntled former student had spread the story as revenge after being expelled. For a Protestant living in a highly anti-Semitic town, the accusation had the potential of harming Bruno's business. But luckily for him, the potential scandal ultimately blew over. Still, the rumor resurfaced for Reinhardt during cadet school, where he was often referred to as White Moses. In response, Heydrich often embellished his far-right past with his fellow cadets, though it rarely did much good against the bullying. Though Heydrich was unable to connect with other cadets, he did impress his superiors. Throughout the 1920s, his strong work ethic allowed him to climb the naval ranks. With each promotion, he became increasingly ambitious and arrogant. According to a childhood friend, Heydrich's impulse was always for more, to do better, to go higher. As a lieutenant, he was already dreaming of becoming an admiral. After years in the Navy, it seemed Heydrich found himself, both as a man and as a commander. He was no longer the shy musician, but by most accounts, a confident officer with aspirations of leading a German naval fleet. But Heydrich wasn't just growing self-assured in his profession, he also gained confidence with women. Before long, he earned a reputation as a womanizer, and his behavior eventually led to a scandal. In December 1930, 26-year-old Heydrich attended a party in the port city of Kiel. There, he met a woman named Lena von Austin. Heydrich fell for her almost immediately. Lena was beautiful, confident, and she was also a devout Nazi. Like many Germans, Lena's family suffered financial ruin in the wake of World War I. The von Ostens found solace in the scapegoating and anti-Semitism of the Nazi party. Lena herself was enraptured by Hitler and a committed anti-Semite. At this point in his life, Heydrich wasn't very political and showed no interest in the Nazi movement. According to von Ostens' post-war testimony, Heydrich had never heard of Hitler's Mein Kampf, and he even made fun of the Nazi leader and his propaganda minister, Josef Goebbels. Despite their different political attitudes, Heydrich and Lena were engaged within a few weeks. However, Lena wasn't the only woman in Heydrich's life. Prior to meeting Lena, Heydrich was involved with a woman from Berlin for several months. She believed that given the sexual nature of their relationship, she was engaged to Heydrich. When she read the announcement of Heydrich and Lena's engagement in the paper, she was confused and incensed. She turned to her father, who had connections within the German Navy. 
Hoping to preserve his daughter's honor, he filed a complaint against Heydrich. He claimed that Heydrich violated the officer's code of conduct. Heydrich's arrogance did him no favors when facing a court-martial. Instead of taking responsibility or clarifying things, he blamed the woman in Berlin. He claimed that she was the one who initiated their relationship. The naval court didn't buy it, and they were completely put off by Heydrich's unbecoming attitude. So on April 30, 1931, Reinhard Heydrich was dismissed from the Navy. The timing couldn't have been worse for him. At the beginning of 1931, the Great Depression sent the German economy spiraling downward even further. And as a result, over 4.5 million Germans faced unemployment. Heydrich was now one of them, although by most accounts, he had only himself to blame for his lack of work. He'd received several job offers, including one as a sailing teacher, but he turned them all down. In his mind, he had experienced the honor of serving as a naval officer, and anything less was beneath him. But his arrogance only went so deep. For days after his dismissal, Heydrich wallowed in self-pity, locking himself in his room and crying. Finally, his godmother, a woman named Elisa Baroness von Eberstein, offered to intervene. Eberstein's son, Karl, was a senior member of the Nazi Sturmabteilung, or SA. She asked Karl if he could pull some strings and secure Heydrich a position within his organization. Karl was more than happy to oblige his mother. However, he believed that Heydrich's talents were better suited for a smaller, more secretive organization, the Schutzstaffel, or SS. Though he was still mostly apolitical, Heydrich couldn't turn down an interview with their fanatical leader, Heinrich Himmler. And Lena, whose Nazi devotion was as strong as ever, was consistently pushing him toward the possible SS job. However, getting the interview required Heydrich to formally join the Nazi party. So in June 1931, he went to the nearest party office and signed up. Heydrich was officially a Nazi. A few weeks later, he boarded a train to Munich to meet with Himmler and set himself on a path to one of the worst atrocities in world history. Coming up, Heydrich evolves into one of Hitler's most dedicated Nazis. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. I'm so excited to tell you that our first book is on sale now. This is such a big moment for the whole ParCast family, and we can't wait for you to read it. It's called Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can purchase it today by visiting parcast.com cults. This is a passion project years in the making and only made possible by you. With your support, we've been able to get back to our storytelling roots. This time with a wealth of research and insights under our belt and intimate details not covered on our podcast before. Shame, exploitation, power. Cults unfolds the many motives behind groups like Nexium, Heaven's Gate, The People's Temple, and more, revealing eye-opening details which will surprise even the most devoted true crime fan. Visit parcast.com slash cults 
to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And on behalf of everyone here at Parcast, thank you for joining us on this journey. We hope you enjoy. Now back to the story. In June 1931, 27-year-old unemployed Navy veteran Reinhard Heydrich officially joined the Nazi Party. Though he wasn't politically active, Heydrich joined to appease his Nazi fiancée, Lena. He also desperately needed a job. After signing up with the party, he was given the opportunity to interview with the head of the SS, Heinrich Himmler. Himmler took control of the SS in 1929 and sought to transform it into the elite Nazi military unit. While the SA policed the streets like thugs in their brown shirts, the SS were Hitler's personal bodyguards. As such, Himmler believed that the SS should perfectly emulate the Aryan ideals that Hitler's Nazism espoused. So when the six-foot-tall, blonde, and blue-eyed Heydrich appeared before Himmler on June 14, 1931, he was already impressed with what he saw. Meanwhile, Heydrich wasn't sure what position he was interviewing for. He was under the impression that it was to simply join Himmler's general staff. He was startled when Himmler asked his opinion on creating an intelligence-gathering service within the SS. As it turned out, when Karl von Eberstein arranged the interview, he embellished Heydrich's naval resume. He claimed that Heydrich had experience in naval intelligence, but in reality, Heydrich had mostly worked in radio communication. Though Heydrich was caught off guard, he didn't let the misunderstanding stop him. Drawing from his love of detective novels, he presented an outline for espionage to Himmler. We don't know what ideas Heydrich laid out specifically, but Himmler was so impressed that he hired Heydrich on the spot. That August, he became head of the SS's new intelligence service, what would become the Sicherheitsdienst, or the SD. Seemingly overnight, Heydrich became a devout fascist working in the highest levels of the Nazi party. While it's likely that Heydrich's fiancée, Lena, planted the seeds for Heydrich's conversion, his true mentor was Himmler. Heydrich showed Himmler complete and total dedication. Not only was this applied to his work, but also in his newfound Nazi convictions. Within a few months, Heydrich fully embraced the Nazis' desire to create an Aryan Reich. He decided that his role was to implement this vision by organizing and building up the strength of the SD. At the outset, Heydrich's mission was to gather intelligence on the party's two main political enemies, the communists and the social democrats. But within a matter of weeks, he convinced Himmler that he also needed to seek out police and political spies who may have infiltrated the Nazi party. Slowly but surely, Heydrich recruited and installed SD liaisons throughout Germany. They gathered intelligence on the Nazis' enemies, sent the information to Heydrich, who then forwarded it to Himmler. Himmler was so impressed with Heydrich's work that he continuously promoted his new protege. 
Within a year of joining the SS, Heydrich had already become a colonel, though the Nazis still had no military power, so the rank was mostly ceremonial. Still, the success bolstered Heydrich's ambition. As historian Callum McDonald summarizes, Heydrich envisioned the SD as the nucleus for a Nazi security system which he could shape and control. By the start of 1933, Heydrich's dream of a fascist security state seemed more likely than ever. Between January and March, the Nazis seized power and almost immediately brought a wave of suppression and violence. Heydrich didn't play a significant role in the initial surge of Nazi violence on the streets of Berlin. Rather, he was on the sidelines plotting his next move, taking control of Germany's federal security apparatus. The former government of Germany, the Weimar Republic, didn't have a national police force. Instead, every state had its own law enforcement group. Heydrich and Himmler wanted to change that. But in order to do so, they needed to unite the various state and local police under a single leadership structure. They began in Bavaria, one of the largest German states. Its capital city, Munich, was where Nazism was born. But the regional government was stubborn to accept the new political party. However, after consistent threats of violence against various state officials, Bavaria ultimately recognized Hitler's authority. Heydrich then seized control of the Bavarian political police and reorganized it according to SS standards. Under Heydrich's control, they began rounding up communists, social democrats, union leaders, and Jews. Many of these victims were sent to newly erected concentration camps like Dachau, where they awaited their fate. And Bavaria was only the beginning. One by one, Heydrich and Himmler bullied any uncooperative German state to accept Nazi rule. Once they had the regional governments under control, they took over that state's police forces. By summer 1934, the only law enforcement in Germany that wasn't under Himmler was in Prussia. This wasn't because Prussia was reluctant to accept the Nazis. In fact, its state president, Hermann Goering, was a leading member of the Nazi party. However, Goering controlled Prussia's police force called the Gestapo, and he didn't want to give it to the SS. But Goering also faced pressure from Ernst Röhm, head of the SA. As the Nazis consolidated their power, Rome and the SA became increasingly unruly in the streets. Rome even threatened to have the SA commit a second revolution against seemingly disloyal party members. As tensions continued to rise, Goering reluctantly agreed to cede control of the Gestapo to the more disciplined SS. And on April 22, 1934, Himmler made 30-year-old Reinhard Heydrich the acting head of the Gestapo. The Gestapo that Heydrich inherited wasn't a large organization. In total, he had around 1,000 employees throughout Prussia and just 700 in Berlin. To put that into perspective, Berlin's population was around 4.5 million. However, Heydrich used propaganda to make it appear as if the Gestapo was much larger. 
Between his control of the press and public events, he created a state of constant fear in Berlin. He made it seem like his eyes and ears were everywhere. With the Gestapo now under their control, Heydrich and Himmler decided that they could make a move against Ernst Röhm and the unruly SA. The result was a bloody purge known as the Night of the Long Knives. First, Heydrich allegedly fabricated evidence which led Hitler to fear an imminent coup by the SA. Then, Heydrich's SD drew up a list of SA leaders to be eliminated. Between June and July 1934, the SS arrested and executed hundreds of SA leaders, including Ernst Röhm. With the SA out of the way, the SS and Gestapo had seized control of all German law enforcement. But conservative military leaders were concerned about the rampant bloodshed. They also questioned whether the SS or Gestapo were even necessary. To them, the multiple layers of policing seemed redundant. Determined to maintain power, Heydrich spent the rest of 1934 and 1935 justifying his role within the regime. One of the most crucial duties during this period was redefining the Nazis' so-called enemies. German communists were the main political threat to the Nazis' rise to power. But by 1935, their organizational structure had been destroyed, with most members arrested and placed in concentration camps or coerced into renouncing political activity altogether. So, using his propaganda machine, Heydrich shifted the narrative to keep the specter of danger alive. He claimed that communism was nothing more than a Jewish creation. Since the SS and the Gestapo were successful against communists, he proclaimed that they should be the ones to lead the fight against the Nazis' true enemy, Jewish people. According to biographer Robert Gerwart, Heydrich's staunch anti-Semitism coincided with his joining the SS. While he was embarrassed by the rumors of his ancestry, he rarely expressed hatred toward Jewish people until he became Himmler's, quote, ideological pupil. Like so many Nazis, Heydrich came to believe Jewish people represented a threat to a so-called Aryan paradise. He argued that the only way to achieve that paradise was to force them out. At this point in his career, Heydrich wasn't yet advocating for systematic murder. Rather, he sought to force Jews to leave Germany through legislative measures. This included expropriation of Jewish businesses and property, or denying assimilation through marriage or citizenship. Heydrich argued that until all of the Nazis' so-called enemies were gone, Germany would remain in a state of emergency. Thus, it required a permanent police force, led by him. Heydrich's anti-Semitic rhetoric and writings eventually reached Hitler. Based on Heydrich's recommendations, Hitler decreed a new wave of bigoted legislation in 1935, culminating in the obviously anti-Semitic Nuremberg Laws. Meanwhile, Hitler's confidence in both Himmler and Heydrich grew. In June 1936, he appointed Himmler as chief of the German police, finally giving him de facto unilateral control. 
Himmler reorganized the agency and created a new department, the Security Police, or SIPO. This unit merged the Nazis' political police, the Gestapo, with Germany's criminal police. Then, he put Heydrich in charge. Heydrich was now one of the most powerful men in Germany. Within five years, he had gone from disgraced naval officer to Germany's leading intelligence official. But once again, a growing scandal threatened to bring him down. Coming up, Heydrich holds onto power with unparalleled ruthlessness. Now back to the story. By 1937, 33-year-old Reinhard Heydrich had become Adolf Hitler's chief enforcer. After helping purge the Nazi party of the SA, or brown shirts, Heydrich rose to lead both the SS's intelligence service, the SD, and the Nazi security police, or SIPO. The control of the national security apparatus made Heydrich one of the most powerful men in Germany. Unfortunately for him, just like in his Navy days, his arrogance nearly cost him everything. In November 1937, Hitler met with the military command and informed them of his desire to expand Germany's borders. For decades, Hitler desperately wanted to reclaim territory that was lost after World War I. As such, he told the military that he would go to war with Britain and France as necessary to achieve his aims. But just as soon as Hitler initiated his war plans, a power grab emerged among his officials. In January 1938, the Reich War Minister, a man named Blomberg, married a young woman who turned out to be a sex worker. Since prostitution was illegal, Hitler swiftly fired Blomberg. Just days later, Blomberg's likely replacement, Army Commander Werner von Fritsch, was accused of being gay, which was also illegal in Nazi Germany, and ultimately led to his removal as a candidate for the war ministry. All signs pointed to Heydrich as the informer behind this accusation. In the years following the SA purge, he and the military brass clashed frequently. With the war minister position now vacant, Heydrich wanted to sway Hitler's choice of replacement. But he'd overplayed his hand. Heydrich's Gestapo had been spying on Fritsch for over a year, but all he had to back up his claim was the testimony of a criminal named Otto Schmidt. Schmidt testified that he witnessed Fritsch having sex with a male sex worker in Berlin. However, during Fritsch's military trial, Schmidt recanted his testimony, claiming he confused Fritsch with a retired cavalry officer. The court also learned that the Gestapo knew of this mistake months earlier, but Heydrich's men had ignored this. With no other evidence, Fritsch was acquitted. The Blomberg-Fritsch affair, as it came to be known, was an embarrassing and dangerous scandal for Heydrich. In its wake, he became increasingly fearful that the military would try and overthrow him and take away the Gestapo's power. And he wasn't wrong. Several military commanders were in the midst of plans for a coup, and Fritsch was one of the chief conspirators. In all likelihood, this coup would have resulted in the downfall of Reinhard Heydrich. 
The only thing that saved him was Hitler's fervent desire to conquer all of Europe. Just as the tensions peaked, Hitler annexed Austria. On March 12, 1938, Nazi troops entered Vienna and forced the Austrian chancellor to resign. The event became known as the Anschluss. For the next several days, Heydrich's SD and Gestapo purged any and all opposition in Austria. Most of those detained were communists, members of the previous government, or royalists. In total, Heydrich's men arrested 21,000 people, the majority of whom were sent to concentration camps. After the success of the Anschluss, Hitler turned his attention to Czechoslovakia. In the fall of 1938, he annexed a Czech region called the Sudetenland. Then, a few months later, he invaded the rest of the country. He divided it into the Slovak Republic and the Nazi-administered Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia. As he had in Austria, Heydrich's SS and Gestapo units moved into the newly formed Protectorate and crushed any opposition. In the months that followed, his men continued to terrorize the streets of Prague. The repressive measures that Heydrich enacted upon Austria and the Protectorate were merely a dress rehearsal. His ruthlessness was exactly what Hitler wanted as the Nazis moved further east into Poland. In the months leading up to September 1st, 1939, Heydrich had two assignments. First, his SD units were to engage in small-scale border skirmishes immediately before the planned invasion, which would give Hitler a pretext for invading Poland. Essentially, Heydrich was leading a false flag operation. Second, Hitler wanted to eradicate all Polish nationalists. Thus, Heydrich launched Operation Tannenberg, in which he compiled a list of 61,000 Polish citizens to be arrested and executed. The list included Polish intelligentsia, clergy, politicians, Jews, and communists. To carry out the operation, Heydrich relied on the Einsatzgruppen, made up of bloodthirsty SD, SS, Gestapo, and SIPO officers, the Einsatzgruppen were little more than execution squads, first formed for the invasion of Czechoslovakia a year earlier. Within the first few weeks of the invasion of Poland, roughly 2,000 Einsatzgruppen commandos and other German armed forces executed nearly 16,000 Polish citizens. According to historian Volker Ulrich, that number grew to 40,000 by the end of the year. For the first time, Heydrich's mission wasn't to send people to concentration camps. It was to commit systematic murder. The massacres revealed a new side of Reinhard Heydrich. Over the years, he became increasingly ruthless in showing his devotion to Hitler and Himmler. But Operation Tannenberg revealed a genuine thirst for blood. Throughout his visits to Poland in September, he encouraged immediate execution of Germany's enemies without trial. He was also specific about which enemies, saying, the aristocrats, priests, and Jews must be killed. It's possible this brutality had always laid dormant within Heydrich, 
and he knew an increase in SS violence would secure his job. He had failed as a naval officer and nearly lost his power over the Fritz Blomberg affair. As a result, he likely felt he had to overcompensate with violence to secure his position. But no matter what specifically drove Heydrich, Operation Tonnenberg marked the emergence of Hitler's, quote, man with the iron heart. However, Heydrich's intentions still seemed to be stoking fear into non-Aryans so that they fled Germany. While his methods increasingly resembled genocide, the Nazi rank and file narrowly saw the purges as simply removing political opposition. But the atrocities were so violent that there were even critics within the German leadership. Several high-ranking military leaders voiced their concern at what they believed was a breakdown in Heydrich's discipline. Yet Hitler endorsed the Einsatzgruppen. He instructed the army not to interfere with Heydrich's death squads. The Nazi invasion of Poland in September 1939 immediately sent Germany into war with Britain and France. For the first year and a half of World War II, Heydrich's duties were mostly split between maintaining order at home and the Nazis' resettlement plan for Eastern Europe. In order to keep the peace and squash any dissent at home, Heydrich created the Reich Security Main Office, or RSHA. This officially merged the Security Police, the SD, and the SS Intelligence Agency. While he was reorganizing the security apparatus, Heydrich also oversaw a massive resettlement program. After the invasion, Poland was split into two regions. The first was annexed into Germany. The second was called the General Government, and it was to be the designated territory for Poles and Jews. But resettling hundreds of thousands of people proved to be a logistical nightmare. Early deportations of Jews were disastrous, as the general government didn't have any systems to house or feed them. This ultimately forced the Nazis to figure out a new plan, including decreased deportations and relocating Jews to cramped Polish ghettos. But as the war raged on into 1940, Heydrich saw that the forced resettlements wouldn't be possible until after the fighting ended. So he sought to help Hitler end the war with a decisive blow. In the spring, Heydrich learned of Operation Barbarossa, the surprise invasion of the Soviet Union. Hitler believed that if he could quickly cripple the Soviets, he would have complete control of the continent and ultimately defeat the British once and for all. Hitler knew that a war against the communists was going to be a war of ideologies, which required total annihilation of one side or the other. He believed the only way to destroy an ideology was through absolute brutality, and Heydrich's Einsatzgruppen were ideal for the task. In preparation for the invasion, Heydrich gave his men vague instructions about who to hunt down. Unlike Operation Tannenberg, which had a specific list, he simply told his men to target, quote, all Jews in the service of the Communist Party and the state. In essence, Heydrich unleashed his execution squads on the Jewish populations of Eastern Europe. 
On June 22, 1941, over 3.5 million soldiers of Axis nations invaded the Soviet Union. It was one of the largest invasions in history. Within days, Heydrich's Einsatzgruppen unleashed a wave of terror throughout the Baltic states, Belarus, and Ukraine. His units entered villages and towns and indiscriminately massacred Jews, Roma, and Soviet officials. For the next six months, between 500,000 and 800,000 Jewish civilians, including children, died at the hands of Heydrich's executioners. One of the most infamous massacres occurred in September at Babi Yar, just outside of Kyiv. Over the course of two days, an Einsatzgruppen unit murdered 34,000 Jews in a nearby ravine. Meanwhile, in Latvia, at least 25,000 Jews were murdered over the course of two weeks in November and December. As Heydrich's men spread terror throughout the Baltics, he proposed to Hitler that they continue the deportation of German Jews. But Hitler rejected the idea. He believed that the expulsion would be met with resistance at home and feared the people turning on him. As German-American relations broke down that summer, Hitler convinced himself that a Jewish cabal was influencing U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt against Germany. In his twisted logic, the war was no longer just about defeating communist Jews, but all Jewish people. After his reversal, Hitler believed that the Nazis' success in the Soviet Union now made the deportations possible. Jews living in the so-called Old Reich could be moved to Poland, and then further east into conquered Soviet lands. Hitler wanted to start by eradicating the Jewish populations of Berlin, Vienna, and Prague, the capital of the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia. Prague was vital to the German war machine as it produced weapons and ammunition. However, throughout the summer of 1941, munitions production had abruptly slowed down as a result of sabotage by communist and Czech resistance. At the end of September 1941, a frustrated Hitler appointed Heydrich acting protector of Bohemia and Moravia, giving him orders to deal with the sabotage in Prague. It was another convenient excuse to use Heydrich's execution squads. Hitler gave Heydrich free reign, and within a few weeks, Heydrich's butchery would leave blood running in the streets. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore Reinhard Heydrich's iron-fisted rule over Prague and his increased role in the Holocaust. Among the many sources we used, we found Hitler's Hangman, The Life of Heydrich by Robert Gerwart and The Killing of Reinhard Heydrich by Callum MacDonald to be particularly helpful in our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, 
edited by Tony Goodman and Andrew Messer, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Listeners, remember to visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale today, and I can't wait for you to dive in. Nexium, The Branch Davidians, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults takes you beyond the headlines for an intimate look at the sordid beginnings and deadly ends of the most radical groups in history. Details never heard on our show before. If you love our cult series or any of our true crime podcasts, this book is for you. Without your loyalty and support, none of this would be possible. So we truly hope you enjoy. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale and ready to read right now. Order today at parcast.com slash cults. (laughs) 